and welcome back to another year of Pasha Shiurim, and it's a uh, to be able to continue this for so many years, and uh, special thank you to all the people who make this possible, and to the shul, and, um, and we start a new cycle. Really, we should have started this year with Boratius, but for those uh, Americans among us that would have, you know, those who are still keeping, uh, still planning on going back to Chutzlaris, that would mean coming in at the end of a three-day yuntif, and I don't think that's fair to anybody. So, uh, so we pushed off to Lech Lecha this year, and um, and really to begin on, uh, to begin with the Jewish people, because that's what Lech Lecha is. Lech Lecha is the beginning of the Jewish people. This is where we're introduced to Avraham as Avraham. At the end of Noah, we're introduced to Avraham as the son of Terach. But now, HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes to, comes to Avraham and says to him, begin the journey <coughs> that's going to lead to you becoming the Jewish people. And so this is it. This is the start. And so we're all starting together with Avraham. Now, as we start the parasha, the truth of the matter is, that it's not in chronological order. Putting aside the fact that events like Abraham being thrown into the Kibshana Aish and all those other sort of important parts, we've mentioned this in the past, how the Rambam says that he had a yeshiva with thousands and tens of thousands of students. And forgetting about that, right? The fact that the Torah leaves out all these details. But even on what the Torah tells us, <clears throat> it's not in chronological order because in fact it tells us that Avraham is 75 years old at Lech Lecha, but Rashi tells us that he's 70 at the Brisbane Absurd. Now, some years ago on Lech Lecha, we worked on this, we had, what happened to those missing five years, and we spoke about that and tried to give different answers to how that works <clears throat> from a technical point of view. But for whatever reason, we're going to go now in a chronological point of view. We're putting aside the journey for a moment. I once heard my Rebbe Ramesha Shapiro, that the reason it starts with Lech Lecha is to teach you that this is how the Jewish people are introduced to the world. God says to them, go to the land that I'm going to show you. That life is a journey. That we're going someplace. It's such an important concept to understand. You know, how many times do you meet people who aren't going anywhere? You know, they are where they are and they are quite content. Never forget, years ago, I worked for a yeshiva. I'm going back maybe 15, 16 years. And I, one of my jobs was to do recruitment in America in November. Wow, you know, every plane is filled with Russia yeshivas and mashkichim crisscrossing the country, searching hat in hand for a few boys or girls, depending what school they're from, to please come to Israel and study with them. You know. And so there I was, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and a Russia yeshiva from another yeshiva sees me there. And he says, look, kid, I see you're new to the, to the business. Let me give you a piece of advice. Whatever you do, don't tell anyone they're going to change. Nobody wants to hear that. I said, let me get this straight. You really think I'm going to tell somebody that they're going to go for a year in Israel and come back exactly the same? And he said, right, just like that. <laughs> and I did not follow that advice. And I told over the story as I was recruiting. And I would say, this Rosh Hashiva, I didn't mention his name, said to me, that I shouldn't tell you you're going to change, but come now. Let's be serious. Do you really think you're going to spend a year learning Torah and Eretzvel in a yeshiva atmosphere and not become a better person, not change, not be a better, a better son and a better brother and eventually a better husband and a better father and a better you know, Jew and a better... Of course you're going to change. And I didn't get anybody. So, <laughs> so obviously there is this concept that people don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> And far be it from me to, uh, to mess with that. So um, I stopped recruiting. But um, <laughs> so I solved that problem. But, uh, but this is the concept. A Jew is going somewhere in life. Where are you going? Where are you going? And that's always got to be the question we ask. But putting that aside for a second, in the middle of the parasha, there is a flashback. And the flashback takes us to an event that happened five years earlier before Abraham begins his journey. And according to Seda Olam, as we explained, there were two Lech Lechas. He left, came to Eretzel, had what we call the Bris Ben Absarim, returned to um, 
to Haran, and then five years later begins the journey. How you break up the events, Rashi says that the war was when he was 75, Taisus puts it, I think, at 73, Seda Olam puts it when he was, uh, Dasikanan puts it when he was 70. I'm not getting into, into that. We dealt with that at length. But the Brisbane Sarum is certainly the beginning. That means when Abraham gets his first vision from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's to go to Israel and to make this bris, to make this covenant that he's going to make with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And it is one of the strangest parts of the parsha, And I, I will be perfectly frank with you. I, when I'm preparing what I'm going to talk about, I always look through the parsha and I look for something that I can talk about. And when I come to parshios that are particularly difficult or ideas that are somewhat mystical and esoteric, I, I shy away from them. Because I understand that we're dealing with an audience here that you know, probably doesn't want to hear those things. And we're, giving, we're dealing with someone who's giving a share who's not qualified to talk about those things. So I find the combination is enough to steer me away so that I try to work out what he did when he was 70 and 75 instead. It's a little easier, you know? And as I look across the different things that we've talked about, there was one part here in the very strange story of the Brisbane Abbasarim <coughs> that caught my eye. There's a lot of strange things. A lot of strange things. <coughs> There are references in the Brisbane of Sarum that came out almost immediately to the Rabbin assassination. You know, there's a, they find his name written there and things like this. You know, I'm not going that deep. I'm not going that deep. I'll never forget, I was, I was at a program and Mati Berger from Esha Torah was speaking that night with Moti Shabbos. And he said, uh, and he says, you wait and see, someone's going to shoot Rabbin. And I go outside and turn on the radio and I said, oh my gosh. They're gonna arrest Mati. I know. <laughs> it was the, it was the spookiest thing. And then someone came up to me afterwards and said, "Did you hear they shot Rabbi?" He goes, "Oh yeah." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just goes to show you. But um, but that's not the aspect I'm gonna deal with. I want to deal just with what happened, just what happened. And um, let's get the story. And we're starting in Perak Tesvav Posik Ches. Vyoma Hashemelokim Bema Eida Kiiroshana. How do I know that we will get Eritzrael? Pashtus. That's what he's asking. You tell me we're gonna get it, but how do I know? <clears throat> and so a coach Baruch Hu says to him, Vyoma Elov, here's how you'll know. Kikali Eglo Mishuleshes, the Aiz Mishuleshes. Here's what you do, says Rashi. Shalosh agolim. Take three calves. And take three um, sheep or rams. Take three uh, goats. And a, a dove and a turtle dove, I think is how they usually translate these things. Yeah? This is what you're going to take. Vayikach lo as kol ela, and you'll take all of this. You're going to take the animals and you're going to cut them in half. And you're going to place the halves facing each other, but do not cut the birds. Okay? And then the vultures descend on the dead carcasses and Abraham chases them away. There's a deep darkness falls on Abraham and there's a fear and darkness great that falls. And we're told about the Egyptian slavery and what's going to happen to us. And this fire comes between the pieces. And he made a bris. I will give you this land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates and the lands of the ten nations. And that is the end of the story. Wow. Strange story. Slicing animals in half, vultures coming down, darkness descending, fiery things passing in between. 
Now you see why we focus on things like 70, 75. Now, I didn't want to talk about any of this. There was only one question here that bothered me in this whole thing, in this whole story. And there are, are stacks of aversion dealing with this issue. And there's only one question that bothered me. What are the vultures? Where are the vultures coming from? That seems to be um, separate from the story. It's, it's, he cuts the pieces in half, he sets them up, he's getting ready for this vision, he's getting ready to make this bris with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, and all of a sudden, ah, ah, right, the birds come floating down, and he says, shoot! Now there's not one extra thing in the Torah. We've mentioned this many times. Abraham, excuse me, Yitzchak was 75 when his father Abraham died. <laughs> I assume they had many conversations during the course of their life. The Torah records one. Dad, where's the sheep? You're the sheep. That's it. I'm sure they had other conversations, but the Torah did not see fit to write it down. And in the middle of this process, here I am in the middle of making a bris, come the vultures. Ah, ah, ah. And we chase them away, and then we go on with the story. Oh, I forgot about the flaming thing. Whoosh, and the that, and the beep signal, and the thing. But in the middle, just before everything starts getting going, the birds come. What's with the birds? What's with the vultures? Now, <clears throat> let's first place to go, of course, is Rashi. And Rashi is telling us that these animals that are being cut in half actually are doing double duty. They're doing two different things for us. What are they doing? So he tells us that these three things, all of these things that we're bringing are references to carbonos that Klal Yisrael is going to bring in the future. Meaning, you want to know in what schus you're going to get Israel in the schus of the carbonos. Right? So he tells us, there are three uh, agolim here, the, referring to the par Yom Kippurim, these are three cows that are used to get forgiveness. Three goats. These are three korbanos with goats. Three rams. Now, the Mepharshim spend a lot of time. Why are these kabanos being chosen? And basically, they have to fit a couple of qualifications. They have to be a korban chatas, so we leave out any ola. These are things that are coming to bring kapora, forgiveness for sins. And they have to be forgiveness that's going to affect all of Klai Yisrael. Aye, what about the chatas yachit? They, 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 all the Mepharshim deal with this point. But he picks out these nine animals to be maranes to nine special korbanos, sin offerings that the Jewish people are going to bring. Right? Vitur v'goizel? Yeah, Rashi just tells us what they are. He doesn't say what they're coming for. Other Mepharshim do. Other Mepharshim explain what they would be coming to, uh, to bring kapara for, etc., etc. Um... Says the Gor Aryeh, the Maharal, Pirish Kol Turim Ubna Yona Shahim Bamikra, whether it's the Mitsora who has to bring it, or the Yoledes, or the Chota Shahudal, all these different people have to bring these bird offerings, it's making reference to them. Interesting that Rashi does not spell it out. Doesn't spell it out. What's bothering Rashi, according to other Mepharshim, is the fact that when it says Tur of a Gozel, it doesn't specify what a Gozel is. A Gozel is a little bird, it could be any kind of a little bird. How do you know we're talking about a dove and a turtle dove, right? Okay, so we take what, what the birds are doing there. And you take them and cut them in half and have them facing each other, but the birds you don't split. Says Rashi. Each one you cut into two pieces. And the Pusik has to be explained on a simple level. Why? Because I'm going to tell you something really deep afterwards. That's also true, but it's not Pashib Shat. But I'm first going to tell you Pashib Shat. You know why we're doing this? Lefishahaya Kores Bris Imo. 
the language of making this covenant, the making this treaty, call it what you will, is always called kores bris. You cut a bris. Bris mila is probably the easiest example to see. There it is a bris, and there there is a cutting going on. Right? We were once going to a bris, and one of my little kids was coming along, and they, as they're getting ready, they say from the Ezra's Nashim in a loud voice, did they cut the baby in half yet? <laughs> so, Adkadekach, we don't do with bris mila, but by bris perim we do. We cut them in half. Right? Or Hashem, we don't do that here. There are, there's a famous story, Shlomo Melech, you know, and there is a similar story. It's an old, old story. I'm sure I've told it here before, but it, it bears repetition. The, um, uh, these uh, two families send away the yeshiva boys to come and marry their daughters. This used to be done. You know, when you had, had somebody, you'd send away for someone to come and, and marry your daughter. But it's interesting that I found out I had a great uncle who was a big time of and uh, they brought him across from Europe to marry this wealthy girl in St. Louis. And uh, she died during childbirth, and they threw him out. And he became a milkman. Which says a lot about why I am the way I am. But in any event, <laughs> every now and then I can find one of these Tamil Chachamim who, you know, in my, in my, uh, my past. But anyway, so, uh, so they sent for these two boys from the yeshiva. And when only one gets off the train. He says, where's the other one? He says, he died. He says, he died? Yeah, he died en route. He says, well, who's supposed to marry who? He says, I don't know. They told us to get on the train and come and get married. I don't know who. So each mother says, no, he's supposed to marry my daughter. He's supposed to marry my daughter. So I don't know what to do. So they go to the rabbi. And each one claims, this is the one who's supposed to marry my daughter. So he says, okay, we have no choice. We have to cut him in half. So one says, that's horrible. And the other one says, that sounds fair. And he says, that's the mother-in-law. <laughs> I just say this over because we have to define the genre. You understand? Not that I... Not that I would ever use things like this. My wife is a mother-in-law now. She's also a grandmother. What a frightening concept. When we first became grandparents, I said, I don't mind being a grandfather, but I'm married to a grandmother? <laughs> anyway. Be that as it may. More about that later, but let's continue. So, kores bris imo. He's going to cut a bris. Because he said, how do I know? So he says, we're going to make a bris about this. The way you make a bris. You cut an animal in half and you pass between the parts. Afkan to no oshun velapid esh that fire that comes in between the pieces over bein hagzarim who shulchal shel shchina shehu esh that is the messenger of Hashem and that makes the that makes the bris strange idea but we have to split the pieces in half and put them facing each other because that's what you make a bris he's going to give a different reason for this but he does not split the birds the nations are compared to these types of animals rams, goats and, and uh, cows and he brings psukim to support each one now the truth is he's basing himself on a, on a medrash which is brought down in a number of places that each one of these three animals represents three kings Three kings from Paras, three kings from Yavan, three kings from Modai. The Yisrael Nimshul Bnei Yona, and Bnei Yisrael is compared to a dove. We spoke about this last year in Parshas Noah, also our first year of the year. Shinema Yonasi Bechag Beyasel Lefikach Bosa Behemus. He split the animals. Remes Yehumas Kolin Baholchen, that the nations of the world will be destroyed. <laughs> And he does not destroy, he doesn't cut the birds to show you that B'nai Yisrael, which are compared to the birds, will stand forever. Wow. So we understand what's happening. We take the animals, we cut them in half, and that's to Bimarames to the to the Kobanos. It's all supposed to be Bimarames to the Yomas Olam, they're going to be split. And they're divided up and they're put on the sides. And the birds are not split. Because they 
represent Klai Yisrael. Right? Okay. So everything's going great here. And then the vultures come. Ah, ah. And Aaron chased them away. What's going on here? So, the Ramban takes the most straightforward approach. The vultures represent the Umas Olam who are coming to attack the birds. And there are those who say that you can see because it says they go to the Begorim and it didn't, uh, doesn't uh, refer to it as Psorim. Uh, and he chases them away. There's one, uh, one parish I saw that says that um, and Avram chases away the birds. He, takes, he, has the, he has the doves fly away. What that's supposed to represent is interesting, but nobody else seems to say it. It's the Umas Olam coming down, and so Abraham chases them away. Makes sense. Makes sense. Unfortunately, Rashi quotes a different Medrash, a Pekidi Rebbe Yezer that says the following. Ha'ayit, hu of, it's a bird, v'ashem shu at, v'shoif, as in the Velus, no, he comes down to eat the animals that have been cut in half. He makes them fly away. This is a remez that David Melech is going to come to destroy the Yumas Olam. And Hashem is not going to let him. Now let's get the scene. This is the Umas Olam. These are representative of the Dalad Malchios. And later on, we see the Medrash tells us, Ema, Chasheicha, Gedoyla, Dofeles is a reference to the Dalad Malchios. And Abraham is going to hear about Mitzrayim. But when he hears about Golos Mitzrayim, he's going to hear about all four of the Malchios, and all the Golios, and all the thousands of years of Golos. And these animals represent that. And comes David Melech flying in. And he says, get out of here. Shoot. Avram Avinu is shooing away David Melech, who's trying to stop us from going into Gullus? Curiouser and curiouser. This is one of my problems. My other problem is like this. The Umas Olam in different places are compared to... Uh, to birds of prey. Birds of prey are clearly not kosher. Right? In general, Jews are compared to birds. Says uh, the Maharal in the Gur Ayeh. Why are the nations of the world compared to animals? They are big. Birds are little. Little birdies. Yeah? Just like the Jewish people, they're very small in amounts. Animals are big and thick. Yeah? So too the nations of the world are big and thick in their physicality. But birds by nature are made of more thin, fine, uh, light material. That's why they can fly. If they... That's, that's the advantage of birds. Birds fly. We're also not so physical. Therefore, birds will tell the future. The Jewish people are compared to birds. The nations of the world are compared to animals. So from that point of view, it makes sense that if a bird is coming down, it's going to be from Bnei Yisrael. But we know within the birds, well, let's, let's uh, switch this around. Yeah? The Chazal tell us that when we talk about what's kosher, they always list 
the meat first. So it tells us what animals are kosher to eat, those with split hoofs, and chew their cud. That's a very small amount. Most animals do not have split hoofs and do not chew their cud. Yep. Um, what fish are kosher? That, those that have fins and scales, because most fish don't have fins and scales. The ones that have fins and scales are a minority. Right? You go into the fish store to go looking for kosher fish. So there's cod, there's haddock, there's uh, carp, there's the talking fish in Muncie. There's, there's not that many <laughs> fish that are kosher. Most of them are not kosher. But when it comes to birds, it lists 24 birds that are not kosher, which means all other birds are kosher. The majority of birds are kosher. We don't know what they are today. Today you need a tradition to know which ones they are because what makes a kosher bird is that it's not one of the non-kosher birds. So it means that most birds are kosher, but we don't have a tradition. We have chicken, we have goose, we have duck. About it. Pheasant. You know, Cornish hen, which is just a little, a, a little chicken, but they don't want to tell you that. You know, so they tell you it's a Cornish hen. You know, it's like small penny chicken. Yeah, and uh, stuff like that. But there's not there's not a lot unless you have a tradition. So certain certain peoples have certain traditions for pheasant or for this or for that. You know, but for the most part, you know, that's it. You're gonna walk into the average place. You're gonna you choose from three birds. That's it. You know, you wanna you know have more exotic birds. It's, you have to have a tradition. Pigeons, pigeons, mustama kosher. You know. Mm -hmm. But anyway. That to me is a somewhat sensitive issue because when I had hepatitis during my first year of learning here in Israel in 1975, I had hepatitis, so um, they told me that uh, if I if I got pigeons to sit on my belly, they would draw the hepatitis out. And I said, "There's there's not a chance that I'm going to do this," you know. And they, you know, tried to talk me into this, and it was like, you know, come on, you know, nice, nice normal kid from Long Island, I'm not having pigeons sitting on my stomach and, you know, and forget about it, you know. And then my Bikiyas Rebbe was very Oluwik. And he comes in the room and he starts yelling at me. You're going to have to answer in Shemayim for the Bittu Torah. You have a cure not using it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, bring the birds. You know? <laughs> and they went out to the Shuk and they bought, you know, eight pigeons. It had to be male pigeons. And, um, and they could only get eight. It was the wrong season, evidently, for pigeons. And they bring them in one of those old plastic sows, and they leave them in my room, and they were going, coo, coo, coo. <laughs> Finally, the pigeon man came, you know, and he, like, cleans them out and puts them on the stomach. The first one died in 30 seconds. And they're just, like, looking at you. you know? <laughs> he wraps them up in newspaper, you know. Ever since then, I don't see myself eating pigeons. <laughs> but it was somewhat effective. My SGOTs and SGTPs which are supposed to be between 10 and 50, were 2,000. And uh, the next week, I had the pigeons during that week, the next week they were down to 200. The doctor said I made a remarkable recovery. You know, and I said, ooh, ooh. Anyway. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell him what it was, because you say it's for the birds, but anyway. Anyway, be that as it may. <laughs> so, um, so uh, Jews are compared to birds. So, so I, uh, you know, so they, they list which are the non-kosher birds. Why is David Melech being compared to a non-kosher non bird? You know? So, okay, you want a bird that's going to come down and, uh, and attack. Okay, so find a vicious turkey. You know what I mean? Or something like that, you know? I don't know. I see some of these people who do the uh, kaparis with the live chickens. Some of those things look pretty scary to me. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Just have a bunch of them coming, you know? I mean, Alfred Hitchcock made a, made a movie called The Birds and, um, about all these birds that come and attack this town, you know. And uh, the only reason I really knew about it was because as I was lying in bed with a little, you know, basket of pigeons sitting in my room, Baruch Chait made this picture of the yeshiva and this gigantic flock of birds up in the sky saying, let's get Orlovsky. <laughs> <laughs> that made a deep impression on me to this day. But uh, why is Dovid Amalek being indicated as a, as a non-kosher bird, as a bird of prey? This is, of course, the only thing in the first minute of Sarm that's bothering me, and of course, it's the one thing that nobody in the Mephoshah Rashi talk about. So, goodbye. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, my brother, for a while, uh, he did the dafyomi on the, on the phone. When you do the dafyomi, they call you up and you go through the phone, you know. 
and he came to that blot in, uh, I guess it was in public comment, where there's only like four words on the page. So he figures, well, this will be a short phone call, you know. And he says, no, they find what to talk about. They're going to keep you there for an hour no matter what. You know what I mean? <laughs> so there'll be something to talk about, you know. But, uh, but this whole thing about the birds, we're compared to the birds. And David Amelech's the birds. Why does Adam Avinu want to chase away David Amelech? And why is he being compared to this kind of a bird? So Rashi says, based on the picture of Eliezer, that he's chasing away the birds, but they're going to come back. He's chasing away David Amelech. He's going to come back, be Yemosa Mashiach. So, what happens at the end? Yechezkel, Perak Lamites. Ve'ato ben Adam, hinovei al gog. Ve'amato ko'amar Hashem Elokim. Hineni elecha gog, nesi rosh, meshech v'suvo. He says to Yechezkel, let's talk about gog. The war at the end of time of Gog and Magog. I'm sure I told this story over. I went to see Rav Bulman uh, on Cholmoit Sukkis after the Twin Towers went down. And, um, and that was the year he was Nifta. And I remember I said to him, I said, Rebbe, you know, what's going on here? He says, David, this is Gog and Magog. Dummy? You know, he didn't say that, but it was, it was implied. You know, can't you see the signs? Everything's going down. I heard this from a lot of people. So anyway, this is you know, current events. Yeah? And Hashem says to Gog, I'm going to bring you down from the north to the mountains of Israel. Your bow will fall from your left hand and your arrows will fall from your right hand. You and all your people will fall. And the nations who are with you, the Vilnagayan says, is 70. It's all the nations of the world gathered together. Yeah? And they're all going to fall. And the vultures are going to come and eat you. And the vultures that are going to come at the end of time, this is Mashiach that's going to come and consume the Umas Olam and the enemies of the Jewish people. But not yet. And the question is, why not yet? So, <clears throat> there's another Medrash. And the Mephorshe Rashi say that Rashi is alluding to this Medrash. Is the Medrash in Bereshis Rabbah and a number of other places. HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes to Avram Avinu with the Brisbane of Sarm and says, okay, let's say your people are not up to scratch. That's the question you're asking me. How do I know they're going to get the land? So if they're all perfect, <laughs> all well behaved, they all do what they're supposed to do, it's really not a problem, right? But let's say they're not. Let's say they're not. And that's why all the korbanos that we're referring to here are korbanos chatas. Let's say they're not. Let's say they do bad things. And they can bring korbanos. One of the Mepharshim explained that the, in the schus of the korbanos we'll get Eretzel. And that's why once we stopped doing the korbanos properly, we went into Golis. And so according to them, they said the ayat represents the Umas Olam who come down to destroy the base of Mikdash. But uh, be that as it may, um, we, we understand that Avram Avinu is being asked by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what do you do? You want to know how you get to, What do you do if your children, your descendants, are not doing what they're supposed to do? So I give you a choice, he says. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives them a choice. Either they can go into Golis of the Dal Malchios, or they can go to Gehenna. Gee, how do you choose? So according to one Manda Omar, he says, I'll take Shiva and Malchios. According to the other Manda Omar, he says, I'll take Gehenna. And the Kosh Baruch Hu goes, No. You, you, you don't want that one. <laughs> Trust me on this. <laughs> Those are the kind of choices I like. 
you know. My father, Ova Shalom, was a florist. And I remember when we got engaged, so uh, he asked me and uh, my Kala to come down and pick out our flowers for the wedding. So he showed us this beautiful arrangement that he was making with a fruit thing on the bottom and this and that, you know. And we started saying, no, we were looking for something more like this or more like this, etc. And my father looks at my brother, who was also working in the business, and they say, no, no, I don't think you understood what you're doing here. And they said to Simi, you know the bouquet you carry? You want a round one or a long one? Just a long one. Says, That's it. Go. You understand? We'll take care of the rest. You know? And the flowers were gorgeous. And, uh, and that's why sometimes it's good when you don't really get to decide. So Avram Avinu, according to one view, took the Gehenim and the Baruch said, no, no, you don't want that. <coughs> Trust me. Go with the Shibit Malchios. Gemara says that Avram Avinu stands by the door of Gehenim and pulls out the Jews, those who have a bris milah. And the Snevdom of Farshim explained it's because of this medrash. Because we chose Shibud Malchias, that's the reason that we know that we're going to stay out of Gehenna. So let's understand what this means. Why then? I understand what that means. That means that David and Melech came along to try to destroy the Yomus HaOlam. He was going to short-circuit this whole process. He was going to rush us into the Messianic era. And Abraham says, now get out of here. Because if we don't have the Sheba and Malchios, then we're going to end up with something worse called Gehenna. Now, interesting that David HaMelech is the role that is chosen for this. <laughs> because David HaMelech has a little bit of a history of trying to move things along a little quickly. I.e., as the Navi itself tells us, um, David Melech saw that he's sitting in a bias and the, the Aron is sitting in curtains, sitting in a temporary home, and he wants to build the base of Mikdash. And he asks the Navi, can I build the base of Mikdash? And he says, yes! And he runs out that night and starts building. And Hashem comes to the Navi and says, what are you doing? Tell him to stop. But he'd already laid the foundation of the Western Wall, which is one of the reasons that that wall will stand forever, because David Melch built it. Now let's understand what's going on here. Why was he stopped? Desla explains. David Melch was Midas Adin. David Melch was Malchus. Malchus is judgment. And he was, that's obviously why on Rosh Hashanah, which is the Yom Adin, we make Hashem the Melech. And David Melech is the Melech. And he wanted to build the base of Mikdash because that was what was right to do. Because it's not right that a Kodesh Baruch Hu shouldn't be in such a bias. Midas Adin is very powerful. And David Melech was very powerful. We all know that it says that David Melech couldn't build it because his hands were filled with blood. But the Medrash continues the conversation. And he says, all the people that I killed, I killed only because they were your enemies. And he says, yeah, I know, that's not the real reason. So what's the real reason? He says, because if you build it, it will never be destroyed. And I see it sometime in the future, B'nai Yisrael is going to sin, and I'm going to have a choice. I can either destroy the Jewish people or the base of Mikdash. And trust me, I'd rather destroy the base of Mikdash. As it says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu pours out his anger against Eitzim Va'avonim, wooden stone, instead of against the Jewish people. But if you build it, I can't destroy it. And I have no choice but to destroy the Jewish people. So here goes David Melech to rush to build the base of Mikdash that will stand forever. And Hashem stops him. And here David Melech comes down to destroy the nations of the world. And Abraham chased him away. We want Gullus, Abraham says. You should know that your children are going to be strangers. And they're going to be enslaved. And they're going to be oppressed for 400 years. Whenever you find the number four, it's always some reference to the Malchios. And he's told about all four Malchios and all of the Goliaths we're going to have to go through. 
and all the things that are going to go through it. And he says, think carefully, Avraham. The choice is between this and Gehenna. Now, every now and then, we like to talk about Gehenna. It's a subject that's close to most of our hearts. And <laughs> certainly gives us a warm feeling. <laughs> so, uh, so we had, it was, I think it was, it was two or three years ago, we did the three entrances to Gehenna, you know, three Pisca Gehenna, you know, how you, how you get there, you know, in case you're, in case you're looking. But, um, but the fact is that what's the idea of Gehenna? Someone says to me, why is, why is, if God is good and God is loving, why does he put us in Gehenna? I said, it's because you don't understand what Gehenna is. Gehenna is an experience that you can have in this world. You really can. You can experience, it's called therapy. If you have ever been in a very bad situation and you have to go in therapy, oh my gosh, that's hell. There's no question about it. Why? Because you have to go through this, this experience of coming to grips with who I could have been and what I did wrong. Suddenly the mask comes off and you're forced to face reality. Yeah, unbelievable thing. You know? That, uh, that's what they say, the, the, the marshal they always give. They show a DVD of your life. And then when they're done, they show a DVD of what your life could have been. And you have to now go through that experience of, oh my gosh, look what I did. And look what I could have done. There's nothing as frustrating as that. When people are younger, they don't realize it so much. When you start to get older, you start to look back at your life. You know? And you realize that uh, most of your life is behind you unless science makes some serious inroads. Right? So, uh, I should make it to 98. You know what I mean? But if not, well, you know, then, you know, we're, we're just counting down now. Tick, 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 you know? And you turn around and you say, my gosh, where's my life gone? What have I done? When you're young, so, you know, you keep thinking to yourself, I'll do something yet, don't worry about it. I'll get around to it eventually. I've got lots of time. People think they have lots of time and then suddenly, eh, time's up. Time to go to the DVD screening room and let's see how you did. Ooh. Wow, that was a crummy Saturday night. You should have gone to Rabbi Olavsky's here. That would have been better. Then you don't have to go to Gehenna. You're there already. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, what would you do? Where were you? And you, then you take a look and see what you could have done. So when you go into the into into Gullus, there are advantages to Gullus. Advantages. One thing is, it always keeps you on your toes. It always keeps you on your toes because you never know what's going to happen. You know. And uh, there's always naysayers who say, oh yeah, now things are secure. Now things are secure. You know? Yeah, they said that in Germany. Yeah, things are great here. They said that in Spain. Yeah, things are great here. They said that here. They said that here. And people say, oh, what do you mean? It's America. I heard somebody once describe it. He says, describing what the Jewish experience in America is like a fellow who falls off a 100-story building and after 30 floors, he says, well, so far, so good. You know what I mean? <laughs> Who knows where it's going to go? I mean, I'm not wishing anything on anybody. But, you know, you, you understand. It's a different experience. You know? I want, every now and then when I go traveling, you know, you go someplace and someone throws a penny at you. You know? Or somebody makes some comment or something. And suddenly you're like, uh-oh, this is not my place. This is not where I'm supposed to be. You know? So, uh... So it's, a, it's, it's something that forces us, but it's a, it does something else too, and that's the famous Gemara and Brachas. Kruspade, it says, you know that the Jewish people are good, and if we do something bad, it's only because of the Shibud Malchias and the Sar Shibba It's the Yetzirah, and it's the Shibud Malchias, and it's not really us. Meaning, Kolzman that we're in Gullus, we always have an answer. And that answer is when they show that DVD, we can say, I know, Kirsch Baruch, but was I where I was supposed to be? 
What if I had grown up in a different circumstance? That's always amazing. I know a young lady who's, uh, I met her when she was in ninth grade. She was in public school. She'd been in Catholic school till eighth grade. Now she was in public school when I met her. And we struck up a conversation and it ends up that she's really Jewish. Her mother's Jewish. And eventually she had to go through a very difficult process. She was describing at her grandmother, her other grandmother's, you know, Xmas party. You know, and there's the tree and everyone's doing anything like that. And she stops to go into the window and light her little menorah. That's an experience I didn't have to go through. But I went through experiences that other friends of mine didn't have to go through either. And everybody has their own experiences. But can any of us say that we knew what it was like to be able to travel Erev Pesach to the Beis Mikdash and see Klai Yisrael bringing their kobonos where there's two lines of kohanim with bowls of silver and bowls of gold and they're moving so fast it just looks like a blur and the, and the, the blood in the, in the, uh, in the Beis Mikdash where it came up to their knees and they're, and they're shechting and bringing all these things and all other things going on and they can't get a drop of blood on their clothes or it's, they're finished. And they have to walk around on little pegs so that they don't get you know, any blood on them. And they're running and doing these things and then you feel the shechina. You feel a Kodesh Baruch process and you, and you, 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 you have a real Seder with a curtain Pesach and you're Shalayim by the base of Mikdash. So what do you want from us? So what do you want from us? That's what we say. That's what Avram Avinu was, was vying for. What do, you, what do you want from us? Yeah, we're going to go through Gullahs. Why? We go through Gullahs because we need it. Oh, you have to have an excuse. You have to have a way out. The alternative is you're going to have to go down there and face everything based on what you were supposed to be without any excuse, without any reason why I fell short, without any reason why I didn't achieve the greatness that I could in this world. And everyone has greatness to achieve in this world. There's not one person who can't achieve something, you know, spe- even if it's just working on yourself. I, I went to see Ramosha Shapiro <coughs> during Chomoit uh, Sukkis. And he mentioned the famous Rabbi Salanta, where Rabbi Salanta said, when I was younger, I thought that I was going to save the world. As I got older, I said, I'll just save my country. Then I said, I'll save my city. Then I said, I'll save my family. And finally I said, when I got old, I'm lucky if I could save myself. I said to him, yeah, Rebbe, I went through that. First I tried to save myself. I realized that was too hard, so I decided to save my family. I realized that was too hard, so I tried to save my city. And now I'm trying to save the world because it's a lot easier. You know what I mean? But even if we saved ourselves, even if we saved ourselves, every person could work on themselves. This was the choice. And David Melech wanted to rush the process. David Melech wanted Klai Yisrael to be who Klai Yisrael could be. That's the job of a Melech, but they weren't ready. They wouldn't be ready to be Moses Mashiach. And so the ayat comes down and he chased them away. In the 11th hour, as so often happens with this year, because it's Siyat HaDashmaya. I, I had a fascinating experience just now. I was speaking for a seed in, in England. And uh, this fellow comes over to me and asks me the following question. He says, Rabbi, do you think I should fast this Yom Kippur? Now, I'm already thinking there must be a trick to this question. You know what I mean? Because like, this is too easy, you know? I said, why? He said, well, I fasted when I was a child. But then I went to... Um, and then I, you know, I, you know, eventually I got married, moved to Israel. And uh, I decided I'm going to fast on Yom Kippur again. And I fasted on Yom Kippur, and that year I got sick, and I lost my job, and I had to leave Israel. So it took me many years before I was ready to try again. And the next time I got ready to fast on Yom Kippur... I fasted on Yom Kippur, and that year I got divorced. So I'm afraid to fast on Yom Kippur. Now I asked this question to a number of cure professionals that I'm friendly with, and they all gave me that same look that I would have gotten under normal circumstances. Um, <laughs> uh-oh. You know, I don't know. But the answer came to me in a second. In a second. It wasn't, it wasn't even pause. I said, uh, I see you're remarried. He says, yeah. I said, is your second marriage better than your first? He says, yeah. I said, then it was a good thing you got divorced, right? 
And what would have happened if you got divorced in, in, in Israel? It would have been terrible. I wouldn't have had any support staff. I wouldn't have had anything. I, I said, so it was a good thing you had to leave Israel, right? And I give you a bracha that this year when you fast on Yom Kippur, you should be zaycha to not only get a bracha, but see how it's a bracha. Now, I said to everybody, and they all agree with me, it's only because it was siyat tashmaya. When you're in a situation, because a bracha helps you. So, the shi'as that start at 7.30, at 7 o'clock I find this chasam seifer. That says the following. V'tema. Can't understand. It's wonder. Shekina v'tiyar la'david ha'melech olu v'sholem v'shem ayit shehu of hud hadarik. Why would David Amalekh be compared to a bird of prey? Why would he be compared to something that's vicious? Nakila, we, we Jews are usually compared to nice things. Vyeshlomar ki oz adayin hayakochel shall David Amalekh ova shalom bekoach lot shivimenu yotza amon umoav shabba David me rusa moavis. David, as we know, is descended from Rus, who comes from Lot. And there is this negative energy that comes from Moab. Moab in Gematria is 49. It represents the 49 Kochos Hatuma, the 49 levels of anti-spirituality in the world. That's where David Amalek came from. And therefore, Alkain Kare he's called now a vulture the achakach afterwards we say which now they're being compared to doves ofos tahirim David Amalek had to go through a process of purification where there's a process taking place. I'll explain what this means in a second. Ah, lo asad lavai v'mherav yameinu yehad dares umasa olam ka'ofa dares. In the future, he will destroy the nations of the world like a bird of prey. V'hainu ketanegolosa de agma. There's a tanegolosa de agma that the Gemara in Chulin says. It can live a number of years, and then some of them will dorace, will be sof. They will trample and eat. And therefore, it says in the Gemara Chulin Daf Samach Beizim and Beiz, Tanagola da Agma Asiri, Tanagola da Agma Shariyeh. There's those that you can eat, those you can't. Vasimonech Amoni Velo Amonis. That an Amoni can never come into Klai Yisrael, a man, but an Amonis, a woman can. They're allowed to come in. What does this mean? This means that there were supposed to be four others. There are four imahs. There were supposed to be four others. The Merkava. The Avos are called the Merkava, the chariot of Hashem. A chariot has four wheels. It was supposed to be Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Esav. But as it happened, Esav was disqualified. Had something to do with the Vodazar, Gilirais, whatever the story is. He was disqualified from being that fourth wheel. And David Melech becomes that fourth wheel of the Merkava. David Melech becomes the one who steps up to be able to do what needs to be done. David Melech is described as red, just like Esav was. David Melech is described as his hands being filled with blood. David Melech has this power of din. David Melech has this power to be able to destroy the enemies. And he could have. But then Klai Yisrael wouldn't have been able to catch up to him. And so there was a purification process. There was a purification process that had to go through David Amalek himself at the beginning, where 
He's coming out of Lot, he's coming out of Moab, and as the whole process comes out until Rus and Nama come out, and from Rus, of course, comes David, from David comes Shlomo, he marries Nama from Ammon, and from that comes Rechavam, from whom the Mashiach is going to come. And the process of purification is going to be there. Then we'll be able to destroy the Yumasol. But you know when you can't destroy the nations of the world? Well, unfortunately, you need them as an excuse. When Klai Yisrael is not living up to our potential, when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, so we can always point to it and say, yeah, but Akash Baruch look how terrible everything is. The bitter, bitter gullus that we've gone through. Look how we've been mistreated. Look how we've been abused. Look at everything we've gone through. And it's true, by the way. There's no question it's true. I've mentioned this in the past. You know, I had a frightening story. I was speaking in a girl's high school in America. And a girl asked the question, she said, but what if who we really are is someone evil? I said, you really believe that in your heart of hearts? That when you get up to Shemaim, you're going to be trying to figure out how to destroy a Kurdish Baruch you know what I mean? You think inside you're evil? Because we're all good. That's what we're told. We're all good. And it's the Umas Olam that twist us. We're not where we belong. We have to get back onto the road. We have to get back onto the Lechlacha. We have to be going to Eretzel. And I don't mean it in the physical sense. I mean it in the spiritual sense. We have to be going to Israel to be able to call out in the name of Hashem, to be able to build a Mizbeach, to be able to reach the levels we're supposed to reach. If you force the process and you remove the Umas HaOlam, then the question is, are you prepared to stand up to the bat and be the person you're supposed to be? If not, it's a good thing we have an excuse. At least we can say we had a hard life. At least we can try to point to the difficulties the Jewish people have had. And this is right at the beginning. At the very beginning of the formation of the Jewish people, and Abraham says, listen, I'm going to make this people. We're going to start something in this world that's going to bring so much good into the world. But what if we fall short? Will we have to pay for it? He says, of course you have to pay for it. Of course you have to pay for it. That's what Gehenim is. Gehenim is, we have to now come to grips with who we aren't and what we could have been. Well, you have another option. I can give you somebody who I can tell you in the end of the, the day, we can point to them and say, it's because I wasn't in the opportunity and the position of where I'm supposed to be. What's Klayisol really? What is Klayisol supposed to be? If we understood the greatness that is inside of ourselves, if we understood the greatness that is inside of Klayisol, what we could be. That's what we have to shoot for. And we're starting a year that's very special in many ways. A Shemitah year. And as we know, a Shemitah year is a year which is all Shabbos. It's a year that we're supposed to be spending it, learning Torah, focusing on what we're supposed to be focusing on. We're, we're in a year where there are no David Parshios. Lots of time to do Chumash and Rashi. Even even Tazrium and Sora are separated. You know, everything's separated. You know, we're we're in a year where where we're where we're according to many people, we're coming towards the end of time. We're coming to a situation where that day when Mashiach Ben David is going to be allowed to come down and destroy the Umas Olam and redeem Bnei Yisrael is very very close. All we have to do is stand up and be Klal Yisrael. All we have to do is stand up and show HaKadosh Baruch Hu, let's throw off the shackles. Let's free ourselves to become the people we're supposed to be. And then Avraham doesn't have to chase away those birds of prey. And that when he davened, that we should have the opportunity to go into Gullus he also davened that eventually we will come back to Eretzrael, El Ha'aretz Asher Eka, and build then finally the base of Mikdash, 
and Klai Yisrael will assume the role that we're supposed to have Emir to Hashem in this world for ourselves and for the entire world to see. Ladies, you can please put down the curtains. Mitzvah next year will be in two weeks. Pachas Chayisara, uh, probably about the same time. Good luck.